Well, church, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's open to that last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 24 this morning, uh, finishing up the Gospel of Luke that we began uh, back around Christmas time. And next week, as we've talked about, we will be starting into the companion uh, book to the book of Luke, the book of Acts, which is where we'll start Acts chapter 1 next Sunday. So if you're reading along with us, again, we'll continue uh, to just go a a chapter a week. I'll preach something from that chapter, and we'll do something else from that chapter on Wednesday nights. And and so I just want to encourage you to continue uh, taking this journey with us. So we come today to Luke 24 which is really the culmination of all that we have looked at since the very beginning of this book together. If we go back for a moment to the very beginning of the book of Luke, we find the purpose statement for which Luke wrote this gospel. And I just want to read it to you just for a moment. Luke chapter 1 said this in verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so that's Luke's purpose, that, that we would have certainty or, or confidence or assurance in the things that we have been taught about Jesus. And I, and I hope that as we've walked through the story of Jesus together over the last uh, six months or so, that the Lord has increased your assurance, your certainty, your confidence in who Christ is and in who you are in Christ. We want to continue that journey together this morning. So let's jump right into Luke 24. We're going to read a little more uh, of the scriptures this morning than we normally do. So I'll, I'll allow you to remain seated this morning as we read the first 35 verses of Luke chapter 24. And Luke says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Paraphrase there, man, where have you been? And he said to them, What things? Jesus has a little fun with them here. What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers had delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come together this morning for the purpose of looking once again at the empty tomb. Being reminded once again of the prophetic scriptures that spoke of his death, burial, and resurrection hundreds of years before these events took place. And before we leave today, Father, we will have the joy of coming around your table just as these two did there in Emmaus so many years ago. And remembering through the bread that your body, Lord Jesus, was broken for us. Your blood was spilled for us and we enjoy a new covenant with God because of your sacrifice Lord may we be among those who proclaim the risen Christ for this is our mission in the world we pray this in Jesus name Amen So Luke's mission in writing this gospel has been to help us uh, to experience the story of Jesus for ourselves, to, to see him as he is, not as we would make him to be, uh, but as he has revealed himself in God's word. 
And as we come to this last chapter, Luke wants us to see one final scene that will help us to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. He wants us to see the resurrection of Christ. That this one who died on the cross for our sins did not stay dead, but three days later he rose from the dead, defeating death, so that we, through faith in him, could conquer death as well. So this morning we want to see the risen Christ. I know that in many ways, as we come to this uh, message, we might think, well, this would have been a really good message for Easter Sunday. I want you to know this is a good message for every Sunday. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day, when we come together, we need to be reminded that we are not following a dead Savior. We are following the risen Christ. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. And I want you to think for a moment about what the message of the church of Jesus Christ is. What is it that as the people of God we are witnesses to? What is it that we are proclaiming with our lips and with our lives? And I want you to know, first of all, what it's not. We are not proclaiming a gospel of church attendance or or Bible reading. We, we are not proclaiming a message of more moral living or how to be the best version of yourself. We, we are not proclaiming that. Our proclamation is grounded in what Luke is laying out for us here in Luke chapter 24. Our proclamation is about the fact that we serve a risen Savior who is in the world today. And we know that He is with us no matter what men may say. We've experienced His mercy and His grace and He is alive. And we proclaim that as followers of Jesus. I want you to notice we're going to move into the book of Acts next week and we're going to begin to see this constant repetition of the word witness. It's the Greek word martyros from which we uh, get the word martyr. When we think of a martyr as someone who dies for their faith, but in the New Testament days, a martyr was simply someone who lived for what they believed in. These men were radically changed by the grace of God and the risen Savior. And they went out, and their witness was grounded in this one fact of His resurrection. He lives. He lives. We have seen Him conquer death, and that was their proclamation. Acts chapter 2, verse 32 The Apostle Peter, first message out of the gate of the early church as he proclaims there on the day of Pentecost, he said, This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Notice the connection between the resurrection and the witness of the early church in these verses. Acts chapter 3, Peter again proclaiming to to, to those who were upset with one of the miracles they had performed there. In Acts chapter 3, he said to those religious leaders, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Again, notice the connection between our witness and the resurrection. Acts chapter 5, once again. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, and we are witnesses to these things. It doesn't end there as Peter begins to proclaim the message to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He says, God raised him, raised Jesus on the third day, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as what? As witnesses. 
And then the Apostle Paul takes up the same mantle, the same message, the same gospel. And in the church at Antioch, he proclaims this, but God raised him, raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to all the people. And church, I want you to understand this morning, now 2,000 years later, this same mission has been given to the church. We are proclaiming, again, not a, a, a new path to moral living. We are not proclaiming a gospel of works or how to be a good person. We are proclaiming simply this. That our God, the creator of all things, saw fit to rescue rebellious sinners like you and me by dying, by sending his son to die upon the cross for our sins. And the one who died in our place on the cross, three days later, rose from the dead, defeating death, so that all who would turn from sin and trust in Christ would be able to defeat death as well and live with him forever in his eternal kingdom. Amen. This is what we're proclaiming. Anything less than that is no good news. If our gospel is only for this time that we have on this planet, it's not enough good news. We need something more because we were meant to outlive this life. And this gospel shows us how to have life in Him. John Stott said, Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. And I want you to understand, church, there are many pulpits today that no longer speak of the resurrection. It's not popular to speak about the resurrection anymore. We'll tell people how to have their best life now. How to have your best marriage now. How to have your best kids now. How to be, have your best job now. All those things are passing away. If we're not going to follow the one who defeated death and speak of his resurrection life, we are falling short of the call he's placed upon our lives. I want, to, I want you to see this morning three evidences of the resurrection that I hope will stir us to be proclaimers of this message that He has given us, that He is risen. First of all, verses 1 through 12, we behold Him in the borrowed tomb. We behold Him in the borrowed tomb. He died there on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders who had been uh, opposed there to uh, their actions, he came and asked for his body, and he took that body, and he put it there in an unused tomb. But it wasn't going to linger there for long. Jesus was not going to stay in the tomb very long. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and the empty tomb stands as evidence for us. I want you to notice the question as those women went to the tomb to prepare his body properly. They weren't able to do so as he was taken down from the cross because of the Passover restrictions and regulations that went along with that feast. They, they could not take his body and prepare it as they wanted to. So they went back after the Passover was done there at the first day of the week. And their, uh, their mission was this. Let's give Jesus a proper burial. The only problem is he had already risen. As they're going to the tomb, one of the other Gospels records, as they're going to the tomb, their discussion is, how are we going to move the stone? 
There was a giant stone that it would have taken several men to move that was rolled across the, the, the mouth of that tomb. And their, their biggest discussion is, what are we going to do when we get there? Who, who will move the stone for us? But what happens when they get to the tomb, the stone is already rolled away. And I love what Pastor Warren Wearsby said. He said, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. The stone was rolled away that they might see that the tomb was empty. That they might know that he was risen. But you notice the question that the angels ask the women there. As they came to the tomb, they see these two in dazzling apparel. And verse 5 says, And as they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground, uh, these men, these angels, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Church, that is the definitive question for us today. Because I fear that for far too many of us, even those of us that profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, we spend so much of our lives seeking life where there is no life. Looking for life among that which is dead. Seeking sustenance among the garbage piles of this world. Looking for contentment and fulfillment in things that will never give us contentment or fulfillment. And he asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen and he told you. He told you what he was going to do, but you didn't have ears to hear, eyes to see. God had not yet revealed the truth to you. Once again, I want us to understand this morning, the empty grave of Jesus Christ is still our greatest evidence. If the body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if it is still in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem, then we are all here this morning utterly wasting our time. If he is still in the grave somewhere, then Christianity is the greatest hoax that has ever been committed against mankind. We are wasting our time. You say, well, well isn't it enough that, that, that the ways of Jesus teach us how to be good people? Garbage. Garbage. It's rubbish. The Apostle Paul would later write about the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. We're the most wretched lot of people on the planet because we're putting our hope in something where there is no hope. If Christ has not been raised, then we are wasting our time. There is no reason to come here on Sunday morning and, and worship a risen Christ if He's still in the grave. But we come here because He's not in the grave, because He is risen, because of these witnesses, and because we have a witness to bear as well. In church, the reality is, just like those women on that first Easter Sunday, we need a regular reminder of Jesus' words. That's another reason when we come here. Part of the task of preaching is to bring a reminder of what Jesus has said. That's why so many times when we come to this place, I hope that oftentimes you come and you say, I've heard all of that before. I hope that's the case. If there's some newfangled gospel that's coming from this pulpit, go to another church. You don't need that. What we need is to come week by week and be reminded of the risen Savior. Be reminded of His death on the cross in our place. Be reminded of the love of God that's poured out for us in Jesus Christ. We need the reminder just as, the, as they did. 
And he said to them, Did he not tell you, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. He said, he did not tell you that the Son of Man must be delivered. He didn't say might be or could be. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They remembered his words back in Luke chapter 9 as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That portion of his ministry in Luke 9, chapter, Luke 9 verse 21, it says Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, but he told his inner circle, he told those disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's not cryptic language, is it? Isn't that exactly what happened? He told them three times. This is the first of three different times that Jesus told them twice in Luke chapter 9 and once again in Luke chapter 18 as he's approaching the city of Jericho. He told them what was getting ready to happen when he got to Jerusalem and yet they did not understand what he was saying. This reminds us, church. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see what we will not see, to open our ears, to hear what we cannot hear, and to open our hearts to receive that which we would reject in our flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to provide revelation of the things of God. And, and the, if you have any of God's truth this morning, whatever of God's truth that you have received, understand it has been given to you as the gift of God. It's not because you were smart enough to figure it out. It's not because you took a certain class or, or got a seminary degree. It's because God in His grace saw fit to open your blind eyes and your deaf ears. And the same thing for this pastor. It's not because I spent three years in seminary that I can understand these things. I could do that and understand none of it. There are men that have spent many more years studying the Bible who, who know less of it because the Holy Spirit has not opened their eyes and their, and their ears and their hearts to receive the truth of God's Word. We are dependent upon His mercy in this regard. Once again, I just want you to notice this was a must for Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection was not a plan B or one of many ways that God could have accomplished what He was doing for for those who would trust in Christ. This is a must, a necessity, as we'll see again in just a moment. Second piece of evidence this morning, we want to behold Him in the Bible's teaching. The Scriptures time and time again point to Jesus. I want you to understand that this morning. And understand that we will not recognize Jesus for who He is until He reveals Himself. There is a mystery here as to how did these two disciples who had been apparently following Jesus perhaps for several years, how did they not recognize Him? But they were kept from recognizing Him. According to the purposes of God, they were kept from recognizing Him that He might lay open for them the Scriptures. And I want to say to you this morning, I would have loved to have been in on that Bible study. What greater thing as they were traveling those seven miles, perhaps a two or three hour journey from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, 
And the King of kings and Lord of lords, the greatest of all teachers, is laying open the greatest of all books. And he is showing them time and time again in the scriptures where he himself was. Perhaps he took them back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after men sinned against God and fell under God's condemnation, God made this promise that there would be one born of a woman who would come and he would crush the head of that old serpent Satan that led them into sin in the first place. And and, and while he crushed the head of the serpent, his own heel would be struck. He would be wounded for our transgressions, Peter would later write. But that wound would not end finally in the grave. He would rise again. Perhaps he took them over to Genesis chapter 22 where Moses went up on the mountainside with his beloved son Isaac and the command of God was going to sacrifice Isaac. But at the last moment, God intervened and exchanged the life of Isaac for the life of a ram caught in the thicket. But there was a picture there of the father sending his son to die in the place of sinners like us. Perhaps he took him over to Isaiah 53 and showed them the suffering servant passage and all that's written there about how Christ would, would live the, the perfect life that we could not live, that how he would die in our place among the transgressors and how even in those moments he would intercede, he would pray for those who were crucifying him, but he would see life again, Isaiah 53 says, as he would rise from the dead. Perhaps he took him over to Psalm 22 and showed them those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very thing that he prayed on the cross just three days earlier, that they would hear those words and be reminded of what Jesus said, but also be reminded that Psalm 22 was leading them to understand this was always the plan of God. You see, here was their problem, and here's our problem as well. We so often desire to see the conquering king without first seeing the suffering servant. You see, here's our problem. We want the crown, but we don't really want the cross. We want salvation, but we don't really want suffering. We want to see Jesus high and lifted up, especially if it means that we'll be with him in that place, but we don't want to see him in his humiliation. And they missed it somehow. Though all throughout the Old Testament, there were pictures that were pointing, signposts that were pointing to Christ and were talking about the one who was going to be both a suffering servant and a conquering king. Somehow they received all the messages about a Messiah who would be a conquering king. They were looking forward to someone who would come in and would kick the butt of the Romans and would free the Jewish people from their, their captivity to the Roman Empire. They were looking for that, but they did not recognize that the pathway to that crown was going to involve a cross. You see, this morning, the suffering servant is the conquering king. And if you would reign with him, if you would be with him for eternity, I need you to understand this morning, the pathway, the pathway into the kingdom is one that is fraught with difficulty. He never promised us an easy life. He never promised that all things would go well for us. In fact, just the opposite. He was very honest with us when he said, in this life you're going to have trouble. To follow me is going to mean persecution. 
It's going to be difficult to follow Jesus because he said, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he didn't mean the little gold cross that many of us wear around our necks. He's talking about that element upon which he died. It's going to mean dying to yourself. And for many, for many, it's going to mean losing your life for the cause of Christ. If we want the conquering king, we must embrace the suffering servant. One last thing I want to say about the scriptures this morning. One reason we've been using the Bible Project, those videos that we showed right before the message this morning, is because I love what they've, they've done in helping us to understand that the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus. Let me, let me help you in understanding the Bible. I know there are many that struggle. I, I read the Bible and underst- I don't understand what I'm, I'm reading. Again, let me help you understand this. First of all, you can't understand it until the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive. But let me give you one interpretive tool that will change the way that you read the Scriptures. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, let me help you to understand this. It's all about Jesus. See, here's the problem that we have in in our 21st century version of America. We read the Bible so often thinking it's about us. Now, we have a part in it. Here's our part. Our part is we rebelled against the holy God and are deserving of his condemnation. That's our part in it. And apart from the hope that we have in what Jesus did for us, there is no hope. So I want to encourage you, don't read the Bible primarily looking to see yourself. Read the Bible looking to see Jesus. That'll change it all for you. Because so often we, we come to the Scriptures and perhaps you're reading and you go, well, I didn't really get anything. I don't, didn't really say anything to me today. Understand, it's not about you. It's about Him. And so wherever you are, Old, New Testament, wherever you find yourself reading the Scriptures, it all points to Him. He is the interpretive key for all of Scripture. And by the way, if you're reading something and you don't know how it points to Him, take that journey and figure it out. You'll be blessed if you do. There are so many wonderful things to be found as we look for Jesus in the Scriptures. He is the treasure that we're looking for as we read the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he goes on to say, and even to five hundred others at one time, there are multiple eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. But the most important witness lies in his word. Because it's by faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Finally this morning, we behold him in the bread that was torn. So Jesus sits down with this couple. They've traveled from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're going to share the evening meal together, and as all good Jews would do in that day, they're going to have bread, and someone's going to take the bread, and he's going to break the bread, and going to distribute the bread to those at the table, and Jesus took up that opportunity. 
And you notice what happened. It was in the breaking of the bread that they saw him for who he was. Their eyes were open. This reminds us that he is the blessed bread of life. John chapter 6. I'm the bread of life, Jesus said. Life is found in me. I'm the author of life and the giver of life. He has authority over all life both to give and to take away. He is the bread of life. How fitting it was that their eyes were opened as he broke the bread with them that night. But also be reminded that he was broken so that we could be brought back to God. He was broken so we could be brought back to God so that through faith in Him we could be redeemed and reconciled and have a relationship with God. Even saying that, as we think about the millions of Muslims in the world today, this is one thing that sets Christianity apart from Islam. If you start to speak uh, to a Muslim about having a personal relationship with God, they are utterly disgusted by that thought. For a Muslim, the thought of God having a personal relationship with people would be to demean the value and honor of that God. And yet, when we look in the Scriptures, we go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, what was God doing in the garden? He was walking and talking with those first two people. He was enjoying fellowship with them, and that is God's desire to renew that fellowship with us, that friendship with us, that relationship with us, to restore us to Himself, that we might know Him in an intimate and personal relationship. That's what He's after. And finally, He's given us this last signpost that we're going to participate in this morning. He's given us the Lord's Supper. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Is that just some... Weird little snack we have in church every once in a while. In our church, we observe it the last Sunday of every month. He says, as often as you do these things, do it in remembrance of me. What is the Lord's Supper about? The Lord's Supper points us to our living Savior. It reminds us that His body was broken so that we could be made whole and brought back into a right relationship with God. That which was broken by sin is renewed and redeemed. It reminds us that His blood was spilled because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We can't do anything about our sin problem, and so He did everything that was necessary on our behalf. And we remember that as we share these elements together. And we remind ourselves there's a new promise from God, a new covenant in His blood that was sealed by the blood of the perfect Son of God. We have a new promise from God that He will never leave us or forsake us. And one day He will welcome us into the fullness of His kingdom. That we will reign with Him forever as sons and daughters of the King. We have an inheritance that will not fade or perish. The Lord's Supper reminds us of all these things and more. And Jesus instituted it on Luke chapter 22. That night when He was about to be portrayed by one of His own, He took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said this, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. A new promise from God is for you. As often as we do it, we do it in remembrance of him.